0: ultimate purpose is never to destroy. God's ultimate purpose is to redeem. That's his whole business here, is to redeem. And sometimes we may feel like uh, we've gotten to the point where, you know, because of our uh, hardness at a particular moment in time or a disobedience that we don't even want to talk to God because we may feel a little foolish for one thing. But we always have to remember that God's purpose is to redeem. And he wants to redeem us from that situation and from the pain that's in our lives because of our sin. Over and over again, we find from Scripture, Old Testament and New, that the only cure for the natural human tendency of rebellion against God is the Word of God. You know this passage. I'll just read the verse to you from, from Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12. We read, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intention of the heart. And of course, verse 13 goes on to say, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows our sin, God knows our failure. God knows our weakness. There isn't any point in trying to ignore it or cover it up. And, and so we might as well turn to the Scripture and see what God has to say so they can point out our failure and, and begin to do the work that needs to be done in our lives. What, what we have here in that Hebrews passage is the, sort of the analogy that the Word of God is like a scalpel. And and God is using that scalpel to cut through our fleshliness fleshliness, and to reveal within us the cancer of rebellion. Because whenever we do something that is disobedient, we are are performing a rebellious act. We are rebelling against the God who, as we're going to read in uh, these passages at the end of Deuteronomy, is over and over again referred to as the rock. The rock. We rebel against the rock and we chase after pebbles and flakes. If we yield to the scalpel of his word, he's going to take that and and he's going to cut away our fallen rebellious nature piece by piece and he's going to begin to replace it with the nature of God himself. But how can we know the nature of God unless we know the contents of this book? And just knowing it in the sense of, oh, well, shoot, I know what Deuteronomy is about. Do we? (laughs) I think you could read Deuteronomy or any book of the Bible over and over again, year after year after year. And every time you read it, God is going to say something new. If your heart is open, if our hearts are open, because he's always sculpting us. He's always cutting away a little piece of cancer because as long as we walk in this planet, we've still got these little pockets of cancer within us, of, of rebellion. We, we never can come to that point where we're perfect. It's sort of like, you've, you've heard it, I'm sure, many times, even, even a man as great as Billy Graham says that he makes sure that he travels as much as possible with his wife, and when that's not possible, he has people around him all the time. He has his room searched before he goes into it in a hotel. You know, all these things are done not only because others might try to put him in an awkward position, but he himself knows that, you know, he's not perfect yet either. And so he he needs God's grace and the constant working of the scalpel of the Word of God upon his life as we do. So God gives the Song of Moses, specifically in this instance to be used as kind of a scalpel upon Israel when they do turn to these pagan gods after they get into the land. We might think after 40 years in the wilderness and after all God has demonstrated to them of his power and of his nature and of the supreme example set by Moses and of the excellent example that Joshua will, will set before them. After all of that, how could they possibly turn to some stupid idol and chase after it? How could they do that? <laughs> because it's human nature. It's human nature. Yeah, I, I often think about our country. And so many places in the world, people are struggling with, how do I eat t- tomorrow? You know, Where am I going to find the food to feed my family? there's war raging all around. How am I going to survive this? I mean, put yourself into Rwanda or Burundi or one of those countries over there. Or, or, you know, all around the world, there's these terrible things happening. And then, you know, in America, some bad things happen too. But you'd think in America where there's no civil war raging, where virtually everybody can find food if they need it badly enough, where, you know, if they're willing to humble themselves a little bit, they'll find shelter and, and protection somewhere. Why is it in this country that we have one of the highest suicide rates in the world? Why is it we have the highest rates of addiction to all kinds of things in the world? We should all be reveling in the fact that we have so much and it's so wonderful. But the human heart's the same. Whether you're in prosperous America or if you're you know, a Tutsi over there in Rwanda, it's, it's the same. Uh, the external things do not change the nature of the human heart. And people are as desperate here as they are over there. It's just that the outward manifestations of that desperation are different. Their desperation is focused on how they're going to eat tomorrow. Our desperation is focused on the shallowness of my life, on, on, on the hopelessness of my life. I've got all these things, but what good do they do me? I still have this deep void inside, this restlessness, this, this, this sense of purposelessness. So I OD on something or other, you know. Or I get high and murder somebody, you know, whatever it is. A lot of stupidity. But that's because people basically are stupid, at least foolish, in their relationship to God, at least. And that's why God keeps dealing with these issues over and over again from Genesis through Revelation. Now, in, in this 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, we have... This which is called the song or the psalm of Moses. And in the first portion of this song, which God has specifically given Moses for the Israelites to memorize so that it will be there as this scalpel to deal with their sin and and disobedience when they begin to turn away and chase after these pagan gods. Now, we might wonder, how in the world is the temptation of these gods there? They're supposed to drive out the pagan people and destroy all the remnants of their pagan worship, but they don't. They leave pockets of these people in the country, and, and they, they look at some of these gods and they think, wow, uh, these people were very prosperous, their, their god must be a good god, you know, and so they are tempted to follow after these gods. And God deals with this whole thing in this psalm or song of Moses. Let me um, read the first six verses here of Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the Rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. They have acted corruptly towards Him. They are not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not He your Father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. You know, he, in, in the psalm we have this, this beginning part where He is talking about God is the creator of it all. And He is the provider of it all. As the showers on the herb. And, and then Moses goes on to, to proclaim who God is. And he makes that powerful statement there in verse 4. And, and he refers to God as the rock. The rock. And the Hebrew word there is for a big, strong, powerful rock. A cliff, if you will. Uh, an El Capitan. And that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some little pebble Or, you know, some little rock sitting out in the yard. We're talking about a great, mighty rock here. That's who God is. And, of course, the concept of the rock is one of permanence, forever here, of stability. We place our feet upon the rock and we're not moved. Throughout this psalm, six times the word rock is used as a metaphor for God. And it implies this permanence, this stability, this one who has been with us for 40 years now, who has not acted like the pagan gods have, who are here today, gone tomorrow, who who cannot deal with the great crises that come along because they're not gods. They're demons. And as we uh, talked about before, when we were back at the time of speaking of Moses at the rock where the water came forth from the rock, Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians, that the rock, capital R, rock, was Christ. The rock was Christ. And so we have this synonym character here of Yahweh being the rock. Paul tells us Christ is the rock. Well, you know, if you know your math, you know if A equals B and A equals C, then C has got to equal B, which makes Christ, therefore, Yahweh. This first six verses contrasts the faithfulness of the Creator, the mighty rock, with the unfaithfulness of his people. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? You know, down through thousands of years of history, the Jewish people have been a very outstanding people wherever they have been. The the Jewish people have been in leadership almost everywhere. Per person, the Jewish people seem to have uh, a greater representation in the upper levels economically and in the upper levels of technology, science, math, all this kind of stuff. I mean, when you think of a great name in, in science and math this century, we think of Albert Einstein, right? Right. And what's interesting is you look through a whole list of those guys who were responsible for the development of the atomic bomb, for example, and a whole bunch of them were Jewish. Far beyond their percentage of, uh, of this population of this country, or of the world, for that matter. And, and so we, we think of them as, in many ways, being an elite, a, a smarter than average people. Yet, what is, what is Moses saying here? He says, you're foolish. unwise people. Foolish and unwise. Did they suddenly become smart later? No, I don't think so. What he's saying is that the wisdom of man is foolishness with God if it isn't rooted in him. That's why there's so much philosophy which is taught today, which is overwhelming the world, and which unfortunately some Christians are actually, uh, uh, you know, shouldering up to and saying, well, you know, it seems to be we better believe this because most scientists believe this. But if it flies contrary to the word of God, no matter what scientists think they believe or what they know, it isn't true. It's like the whole basic doctrine of evolution. I have a real hard time with what's called theistic evolution. This whole idea that, you know, God is the one who started it all and he's done done it all by evolution, but he started it. So that's the ultimate answer. Well, you know, that just doesn't square. It doesn't fit with the word of God. And even though it could be that uh, Clarence Darrow kind of squished the silver-tongued order. Why does the name slip my mind right now? No, um, tw- 1925, the Scopes trial. Brian, Brian thank you. William Jennings Brian. Even though Darrow squished him over in the corner and got him to say, well, it's possible that the days in Genesis are actually ages. And thereby, that was supposed to be the downfall of the whole concept of creation and, and of a literal biblical understanding of things. I mean, that's just a bunch of foolishness, you know, when it comes right down to the ultimate thing. Sure, we, we don't, we've not been there. And we haven't been able to witness the, the blow-by-blow creation of God. But when, when you read Genesis and you read Jesus' words back about Genesis, it pretty well narrows the scope down. And, and unless you want to just kind of generalize all of Scripture, which if you do that, then you can just say, well, you know, Jesus was just kind of a type, and you may have not even have been to Jesus. Maybe the docetists were right, and Jesus was just a phantom. He wasn't really here. I mean, you start taking that approach, and, and then you might as well join the Christian science church, you know, and just pretend like everything is fantastic, and there's no reality to it, you know. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that you want to over-literalize the Word of God so that you say God is actually a big boulder, you know. Or like the Mormons do, that, that God is actually a, a person, you know, super Adam. You know, and He actually has hands and feet and all this kind of stuff. But we have to take the Word as it, as it clearly comes forth to us. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is to think about the fact, who has read Scripture down through the thousands of years of history? Who has read it? Well, the majority of people who have read it have not held PhDs. They have not held PhDs in literary interpretation. They've just been simple folk who say, this is what God says, I believe it, that's good enough for me. And of course, the, the bright minds of today will say, oh, they're just a bunch of fools. They don't know what they're doing. But you know, God clearly says that the, f- the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And I don't think that we, we need, if we, if we believe literally that God created the heavens and the earth and this whole concept of, of, of evolution, theistic evolution or paddle pun or any of these other guys who run around and Hugh Ross or others who go, run around trying to, to say that they're Christians at the same time while well, they uh, believe in all the, the basic uh, scientific uh, stuff which flies directly in the face of, of the literal understanding of Scripture, I, I don't think we have to compromise with that. And I don't think we've thrown our brains away either. Uh, you probably, if you get Christianity today, you know that there are, there's a growing number of, of scientists today who are believing in a young earth, that the earth is not billions of years old, that it may only be a few thousand, 10,000, 100,000 at most years old. And there's more and more evidence for that fact. You know, one, one of the points, I, I'm getting a little bit off the track here, but there's, <laughs> there's, a, point, there's a point that I make in my uh, World Civ class, the first two lectures when I teach World Civ at the beginning of a semester, I, I deal with this whole issue. And what, one of the, to me, one of the most profound evidences is in the lunar landing in 1969. Because if you remember, the lunar lander was not made with just sharp little feet. It was made with these huge pads so that when it came down, it wouldn't sink 20 feet into the dust that was supposed to be all over the planet, uh, all over the moon. Because, you see, the moon, having been there for two or three billion years, has had all this cosmic dust infall. We know how the rate at which cosmic dust is constantly coming into the earth. Well, in the case of the earth, the cosmic dust, much of it burns up in the atmosphere. So the amount landing on the earth is, is less than lands on the moon. There's no atmosphere on the moon. So what lands on the moon goes nowhere. There's no wind. There's no water. There's no erosion. Anything that lands on the moon stays exactly where it lands. And so when they built the lander, they knew that over these billions of years, there must be tens of feet of cosmic dust sitting on top of the surface of the moon. So if you bring this thing down with pointed feet, it's just going to go poof, like into a, you know, like into a big box of talcum powder. And these guys are going to be looking out the windows at <laughs> dust all around them, you know. So we better make these big padded feet. Oh, and of course, you know what happened, they landed there and and Neil Armstrong got down there and he kicked the ground and there was not even a half inch of dust on the surface of the moon. I mean, how can one explain that in billions of years? How is that possible to explain? It's not possible to explain that. Given the theory of evolution, it doesn't fit, absolutely doesn't fit. The amount of cosmic dust exactly fits the idea that the earth and the moon have only been here maybe 10,000, 20,000 years at the most. Fits it perfectly. So, anyway, God is our rock. And, and when we chase after the ways of this world, we become fools. In, in the next section, beginning of verse 7, he says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your Father and He will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. He found Him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them, he carried them on his pinions. (coughs) The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on high places of the rock, uh, of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field. And he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan, and goats with the finest of the wheat and the blood of grapes. You drank wine. This demonstrates the goodness of God. Here is a portion of the song where where God is, through Moses, describing his goodness to his people knowing. I mean, remember, God is omniscient. He knows what you will do before you do it. He knows your failure before you do it. He knows your obedience before it occurs. God knew that they would become foolish and unwise, that they would repay his goodness with chasing after false gods. But yet he still reminds them of what He had done for them and what He will do for them. He will give them all these good things. He he will allow them to draw their sustenance even out of the rock in the wilderness. He will be with them like the eagle carrying its young. He provides them with the food from the cow and the flock and the lamb and the ram and the goat, all of this. God was faithful and God's goodness in choosing his people. As we read before, God said, I didn't choose you because you were a great and numerous and mighty people. I chose you simply out of my mercy. I mean, who was Jacob anyway? The supplanter. Oh, good guy, you know. Great guy to have start your nation. Who was Abraham? Oh, he was another good guy. Lied about his wife and had her taken by the Pharaoh of Egypt and you know give your li- give your wife away just save your life oh good yeah. very very uh, cavalier <laughs> right all, all these men and women had had feet of clay as it were and yet god was good to them and he called abraham to be the father of the na- of, of a nation he he made jacob the one from whom would come the 12 tribes of israel And then when you read about the ratty sons who were the leaders of the tribes, you think, yuck. Did God know what he was doing? Reuben, unstable as water, you know? Judah goes off and has sex with his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's some kind of a prostitute. Oh, that's that's better, of course. I mean, he has a good excuse. (laughs) Uh, You know, and Simeon and Levi go butcher a whole population of a town. His daughter Dinah goes off and gets herself raped. I mean... You look at all of this and you think, God, uh, are are you really in control here? (laughs) Do you really know what these people are like? Yeah, He does. He knows what you're like. He knows what I'm like, too. And He loves us. He wants to redeem us. He, He wants us to learn to follow Him because in following Him, Jesus says, take up the cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But that is not to be viewed... As certain branches of the church have viewed that as flagellants, you know, guys who walk around with strip to the waist, whacking themselves on their back, you know, with uh, some kind of a cord as, as kind of a penance or, or living on a hilltop monastery someplace where it's cold all the time and you eat hardly anything and you spend all your time supposedly in meditation and prayer. I mean, that's not what Jesus was saying when he said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Because as you read through the through writings of Paul and the other New Testament writers, you clearly understand that it meant living faithfully in the place where God plants you. And that's going to be, a, there's gonna be persecution there. I mean, every one of us have probably at some time had somebody laugh at us or imply that somehow we were dim-witted because we believed in Jesus. I mean, today that's viewed as escapism. You know, as Lenin said, Christianity is a crutch. For those who are strong, we don't need Christianity. But for those who are weak, you can have Jesus if you want. God was good to Israel, and they weren't always obedient. And in this song, this psalm, God is constantly repeating his faithfulness to Israel. From verses 15 through 33 of this particular song, God talks about something that we in America have learned to be a reality. And that is that prosperity can lead to apostasy. Prosperity can lead to apostasy. And it certainly did for them. Let me just read three, the first three verses of that section. Verses, well, four verses, 15 through 18. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God, whom, the God who made him. And scorned the rock of his salvation they made him jealous with strange gods with abominations they provoked him to anger they sacrificed to demons who were not God to gods whom they have not known new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth and he goes on in in a similar vein here through this whole passage as I was reading lately, I think Dr. Walmart gave me this little. What was that little article? Ken Horn wrote it uh, about. Ken Horn's a graduate of our college, and he's what, what's he head of? Kind of coastal I read that the week you were gone. Oh, okay. So uh, you've already told them about that, all right? But the whole idea that there are what 330 million gods in Hinduism. So what's a god lesser to here or there? <laughs> A new God comes along. Oh, Whoa, well, we have a new God now. You know, that's what Joseph Smith did. Came along, created a new God. Suppose he had this vision and all the other gods are false, but the real God is uh, the God I'm showing to you. And, and he goes on and tells us that we're all gods. whoopee. Prosperity can lead to apostasy. That's one of the reasons why God doesn't make most of us rich. But actually in worldly goods, most of us are compared to most of the world. We are rich. The more we have, the more we want. I've never been able to figure it out, except to know the basic teaching of Scripture concerning human nature, how somebody as rich, let's say, as John D. Rockefeller was, who could still want more and and do bad things in order to get it. Why? You got so much money you couldn't spend it if you spent the rest of your days just spending it. What do you want more for? But that's human nature. I mean, greed is an insidious cancer. And it's insatiable. And so are so many other things in life. And here it is. Israel, God is saying, they're going to go into the land and I'm going to give them all that I've promised them. And they're going to have vineyards that are full and olive trees that are full and their flocks are going to multiply and they're going to live in peace. And what are they going to do? They're going to thank me every day. No, they're going to chase after other gods who are not gods. He says right here, they're demons. Which is exactly what Paul tells us in the New Testament too. They're demons. That's why they have power, by the way. That's why they're not just nothing. They do have power. There's demon forces behind these gods. But their power is nothing in the presence of the living God, the rock. They're like teeny little grains of sand in front of El Capitan in comparison. And that's giving them a lot of credit, actually. Well, I don't have time to finish this song, so we'll do that uh, next Sunday because I want to emphasize some of the things are said towards the end of the song because they are powerful and beautiful words, which are as applicable for us in many ways as they were for Israel of that day.